Hi everyone, I'm your host Ed Miller and welcome back to another episode of I One Two, the podcast that spotlights important role players from your favorite professional teams and their journey to becoming a champion. This week, we make our way onto the basketball court for our first conversation with an NBA champion. When you think of the Houston Rockets and the team's early 90s back-to-back titles, Hakeem Olajuwon's dominance and Clyde Drexler's homecoming probably come to mind. But today's guest proved to be an unsuspecting contributor when he signed a 10-day contract during the 1994-95 campaign. That 10-day contract evolved in an important role throughout the playoffs, as the Rockets eventually swept the Orlando Magic in the finals to win their second title, thanks in part to his 4.5 points per game and 3.1 rebounds per game in the postseason. Drafted 43rd overall in the 1989 draft out of North Carolina State University, he played power forward and small forward on 12 different NBA teams during his 13-year career, tied for most in league history. And he's got some great stories, so I don't want to waste any time. Let's talk to today's guest, Chucky Brown. You were born in New York City. Um, At what point did you make your way down to North Carolina? I was going to the 10th grade. Uh, like 1982, I was in ninth grade. So 1980, I was going to the 10th grade and my grandmother had gotten sick, my father's mother. And at that time in New York was, uh, was getting pretty rough. You know, the, 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 the crack era had started and it was about to hit and my father could see that, you know, he didn't want, you know, me being out there, you know, you, you gotta go outside. So, you know, he didn't want me getting out and mix that up with the wrong crowd or whatever. So he wanted to move. He just said, you know, I just want to, I just move back and, you know, help my mother out, you know, while she's not doing well. So, you know, basically my father's idea to get out of New York then. And, uh, we moved, we moved then like 1982, 83. You played your, uh, basketball as a freshman in New York, correct? Yeah. Well, I actually got cut from my freshman team at Cardinal Hayes high school, um, in the Bronx and, uh, I did not make the team, but Coach Murray was the coach at the time. He said I played well enough to make it, but he decided to keep this other kid. What was his name Sam Graham? I remember Sam Graham. He decided to keep Sam Graham, and he ended up Sam ended up going to like Iona or St. Bonaventures or something like that. Um, but I do remember he told me I should come back out next year. You know what I'm saying? He told me to come back out next year, and I told him, you know, well, I'm moving, so I won't be able to come out next year. So. You know, my feelings wasn't hurt at all. You know, I didn't, I didn't really, you know, I was just playing. It wasn't no, you know, it wasn't no big deal to me. I was playing just because I like to play basketball. So it wasn't a thing where I was thinking about no pros or nothing like that. Is it true that a growth spurt kind of helped jumpstart your high school career, though? Yeah, a growth spurt, when I moved from that ninth grade to the 10th grade year, I grew to about 6'5". So um, that helped. That helped me. You know, I was... You know, young, but, you know, uncoordinated kids. When I moved to North Carolina, they used to tease me and call me flicked and, you know, all kinds of names because I was kind of goofy and clumsy. So that, you know, that never that never made me mad or anything. That just made me, you know, want to be better. And, you know, it just made my jokes a little better when I came back at them, too. So, So, yeah, that was it. What sort of basketball skills did you excel at in high school? What was your game kind of like? Well, my game was um, just driving and slashing because, you know, in New York, you played outside on the playground. So and you played outside when it was windy. So you didn't want to shoot a jump shot. You know, New York, you put it down and you get to the rack. So that was my thing. Driving, slashing, wasn't a good jump shooter. Um, Never really worked on it until I moved. Um, But yeah, I was 
slasher, driver type player. You're quoted as saying, that's one thing that my father always told me. When I was upset about not playing as much, he told right. me, don't complain about it. Keep working because your time will come. Can yep. you talk a little bit about the importance your father played on your during your earliest basketball days when you weren't getting those minutes? Yeah, he played a, a very important part because, you know, as a kid, if you think that you're better than somebody and they're playing in front of you, then, you know, and then you, you don't really see any light. You know, you, you feel like the coach likes this guy better than you, then it's easy as a kid to be like, you know what, forget this, I'll go do something else. You know, so, and my father was just like, you know, if you like doing it, you know, keep doing it. You know, you, you'll get your opportunity. You don't complain about nothing. You know, your time will come. And when your time comes, if you complain about it, you won't be ready. You know, and he was right. My time came and shoot, I was ready when my time came. Did you have a lot of colleges looking to recruit you or did you kind of stay under the radar? I didn't really get a whole lot of colleges start to recruit me until after I went to five star. When I went to five star, that's when a lot of the colleges, you know, when I came home, my phone was ringing off the hook. So I had a lot of colleges uh, like late. I sort of was a late bloomer, you could say, like a lot of people didn't know about me. Can you talk a little bit about what five star means? Well, five-star basketball camp, uh, it was a camp where all of the top, or every college in America was there, you know, so um, all of the top college coaches came and all of the top players in the country were there. So that was where you got to play against one another, you know, and you get to see the who's who, you know, you get to see who's who. And that's where, you know, you probably, like years ago, that's where your rankings used to come from, you know, how they got everybody together. That's how they that's how they used to rank you when you got to a five star to play. And if you went to five star and did well, more than likely going to be a top recruit. So it was just a basketball camp out in uh, Pennsylvania. So it, it, it really meant a lot. Years ago, that was the thing was basketball camp. It wasn't it wasn't the AAU thing. You know, each I guess each state. I know North Carolina only had one AAU team that I could recall. And they used to play in this thing called the Boston shootout, you know, years ago where other states would come there and meet and they have a big turnaround round robin tournament. So, um, you know, five star was was big. You know, you had BC all stars, but the camp scene was really big back then. Did you play against any future NBA talent? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you name it. Uh, let's see. I remember Rod Strickland. Chris Washburn was there. Danny Ferry. David Butler. I mean, God almighty. Uh, I mean, every, I mean, everybody, you you name it. <laughs> I can't remember all of the names, but, but all those guys, you know, and a lot of those guys, you know, you ended up seeing them. You know, you might see him at an all-star camp. Like when I went over to the Albert Schweitzer tournament, playing with Glenn Rice, B.J. Armstrong, Richard Morgan, you know, those guys, Eric Brown, you know, we were overseas playing together. But yeah, five-star had, you know, everybody came through five-star, everybody. And as you're starting to make that transition from high school to college, what was it uh, besides obviously a recent national championship that kind of drew you to NC State? Jim Valvano, for one, being from Queens, uh, Lorenzo Charles there, being from Brooklyn. Ernie Myers was there, being from Manhattan. You know, he's from Spanish Harlem. I grew up in Harlem, and Ernie and I knew a lot of the same people. Uh, And his uncle and my father drove the bus, drove the city bus together. So it was just like... It was like a New York thing to me because I ain't really know nothing about NC State. I knew more about North Carolina because Jimmy Black went to my high school. And when North Carolina played Georgetown in the national championship, I was pulling for North Carolina because uh, Jimmy Black went to Cardinal Hayes. So, um, you know, it's just like a New York thing. It's like that's where I gravitated to because I knew nothing about NC State. I just kind of gravitated to, you know, Jim Valvano being from Queens. And when I came on my visit, they, they sent me with Lorenzo Charles, who was from Brooklyn. 
So, you know, I spud Years Webb was later, a that's a cardinal sin. Yeah. <laughs> rooting, for, rooting for North Carolina. I know. And NC State. Hey, I know. <laughs> hey, but sometimes the truth hurts, man. So, <laughs> so yeah. You live and you learn, right? Yeah, you live and you learn. That's right. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about that connection with Jim Valvano and, and just how New York City helped kind of bring both of you together? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I came down here, my, my, my high school coach, Cliff Gibson, used to work Jim Valvano's basketball camp. So when I came down here, the first thing he did was bring me up there. So and when I got up there, Tommy Abetta Marco was the guy that recruited me. So Tommy, um, you know, Tommy was another Long Island guy. And, uh, you know, he used to just used to talk to me all the time and told me, you know, told me things like, you know, if you work hard, you could be all ACC. And, you know, he just he, he sold a dream to me. So, you know, I was like, what? I could be all ACC if I work hard. You know what I'm saying? So it was, you know, he, he kind of like, you know, he, he had a way of talking to me, you know what I'm saying, that I, I understood. And I just liked the energy that Valvano, that he came in with, you know, when he came into the camp. You know, we didn't see him, you know, but a couple times during the week. But, you know, his, you know, his energy that he brought. And I, I, I liked it. You know, I thought he was crazy. That's what I wanted to be around. I wanted to be around a guy with some energy and that could, um, could uh, you know, say something to you and get you fired up. And, and V was good at that. You know what I'm saying? So I think the fact that he was from, you know, he, he, he was from New York, it, it helped me gravitate that way. Um, you know, because I'm just fresh out of out of New York down in North Carolina. It's like if you go anywhere, you know, you're from Philly. If you go to if you move to Colorado, you find out there's a group of people from Philly at, that hang out at a sports bar every night. You know, you just get there. You're going to probably go there and see, you know, hey, you know, these people are from Philly. I'm going to hang. I'm going to kick it with them. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what it you know, that's what it was for me. It's funny, though, because you mentioned being kind of a, a, a knucklehead. You were kind of tall and lanky. And yep. it seems like from from what I gather from Valvano and kind of watching the SB speech and that sort of thing, that he was he was serious when he had to be, but he was also a little bit of a knucklehead. So you guys seem like you had parallel wavelengths from that front. Right, right. Well, V, yeah, he was, he was, you know, he's serious when he had to be. You know, I can remember plenty of times, you know, when we were in school and, you know, somebody wasn't going to class or guys were, we're not getting good grades and the speeches that he gave us, you know, and it, it was like he would mix a little humor in it, but it was serious. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, I mean, he just knew how to talk to us, man. And, and and that was that was big, you know, because you have some coaches that they get on you, but then they don't tell you when you do something good. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of times as a player, you don't mind if a coach gets on you. But if you do something good, shit, you want to know that too. So and I think I think V was good at that. Well, it's funny because during one of the biggest moments in NC uh, NC State history, the uh, nineteen eighty seven ACC championship against rival North Carolina, Jim Valvano, as time expired, he ran and just jumped into your arms. Right? Were you anticipating that? Like, was that expected? <laughs> nah, that wasn't expected at all. And uh, you know, I I remember. When we won that game and, you know, I just kind of had my hands up in the air. So I saw him coming, you know, and <laughs> he came and just like jumped into my arms. And, you know, he wasn't slowing down when he was coming towards me. So I was like, OK, all right, he about to he, he about to jump into my arms. So <laughs> he jumped into my arms and uh, all he kept saying was it's over. It's over. It's over. So he was really relieved that it was over because nobody really gave us a chance to win that game. You know what I'm saying? Nobody believed in us. And, you know, he let us know that, you know, but he believed in us. So and that's all we really needed. And Carolina had beat us twice that year. 
You know what I'm saying? So they beat us twice pretty good, too. So, uh, you know, both of them, both of the wins by double digits, I believe, if I remember correctly, they beat us both times by double digits. So, you know, we just had been playing well and just got on a nice run. And yeah, I remember him saying, it's over, it's over, it's over. And that's all he kept. He must have said it about five or six times. But so, why did you have the bullseye on you? I mean, was it just the connection you guys had? What what made him come sprinting your way? I think because, I don't know, man, it was like V always, like it was always a connection there. Like a lot of people don't know, like whenever I got hungry at night, you know, it would be nine, 10 at night. I'd drive over to his house and he would have his wife fix me something to eat. You know what I'm saying? Because I didn't have any money. I didn't come from no family with no money. My father was a bus driver and my mother was a telephone operator. I had no car. You know, if not for a scholarship, I probably wouldn't have been in college. So, you know, I ain't have nothing. But like I said, whenever I was hungry, I borrow, I might borrow Washburn's car, drive over there and eat. So I think that, you know, we developed a connection, you know, both being out of New York City and then, you know, me not knowing, like, I guess, you know, maybe there was rules against that, but I was hungry. So I didn't care about no rules. So, uh, you know, whenever I needed some shoes in the summertime, you know, I'd go over to his house, he'd give me some shoes or he'd have Thorough Bailey would send me some shoes. You know, summertime when, uh, when I stayed up, went to summer school, I needed a job. You know, I went to V and V helped me get a job. You know what I'm saying? So I had a job in the summer. Like each summer that I stayed up and go to summer school, I had a job too. So, um, you know, I guess that was the connection. I mean, I wasn't afraid to go to him. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people are afraid to talk to their coach. I wasn't afraid to talk to him. You know what I'm saying? I felt comfortable with him. So I think that might have been that might have been that connection right there. We as fans, we only see what the coach does in practice and, and in the games, but it's it's things like that, those little things that can be just as important as developing right. not only a player but a human being that's going right. to go on the rest of their life to be successful, whether it's in the NBA or in whatever profession they they follow. Right. Yeah, I, I think that um, you know, I think that we did have a relationship off the court too, because I remember when the. Um, when the personal files book first came out or it was coming out or something like that. And I remember, you know, he called me in the office and I was a senior and uh, he called me in the office and, you know, he was talking about it. You know what I'm saying? I remember when we got the bogus call when we played Georgetown in the tournament and one of the referees had written via an apology letter for making a bad call. And he called me, he called me in the office and he read the letter to me. You know, I guess it was more of, you know, we would, we were connected more so as people too, because I know like even when I went off to the pros, uh, whenever I came back home, I would go by his house and sit and just talk to him. You know, I think that was, you know, that was the connection right there. You know, good connection for us right there. We connected as people too, as well as, you know, player coach. What was your anticipation of the pros as you finished up your, your college career? Where did you, where did you see yourself in the NBA? I mean, I had played against all of the, the top players and had done well against them. You know, I really didn't have a, I just saw myself as, you know, hoping to make it and hoping to um, just have a good career. I didn't really see myself anywhere. I, you know, I, I knew I could, I knew I could compete and I could be just as good as, you know, some of these guys. Cause it was guys that I saw playing in, in the league that I had played well against. And I'm like, oh, well, he can make it. So can I. Um, I really didn't see myself no particular place, but I did see myself like being able to compete. You uh, you spent the draft at home watching on TV. Yep. Uh, how was that experience? Were you kind of nervous as you kept seeing players get taken before you? Or is that something kind of just wherever I land, I'm going to make the best of it and let's go? Yeah, I just kind of like was, you know, wherever I land, I'm going to make the best of it. You know, I just wanted the opportunity. That was it. So, um, I mean, I saw guys go first round that I had pretty much destroyed and 
you know, it didn't, it didn't bother me because like I said, my eyes weren't set on, I mean, I didn't really think about playing in the pros. It's just something that happened, you know, for me. Um, and I just made the most of it. So I was just like, you know, wherever I go, I'm gonna make the most of it. You know, I knew I was good enough. You know, I went to the Olympic trials and, and you know, made it to the final, like 18, uh, people cut. The reason why I probably got cut because I was ready to go home. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I wasn't, you know, I was just like, you know what? I did good here. I'm ready to get up out of here. So, um, and I probably could have made it if I put my mind to it, but I, I didn't. Why is that? Was it just the thought of, of, of the amount of training and, and everything that goes into that that just kind of turns you off? Nah, it was just, it was just like the length of time that we were there. You know what I'm saying? Like we spent, you know, a week and a half in Colorado Springs and then we went, we played there. Then we went down to Denver to play. And, you know, it was just the being away. And it was like, it was like your off time. It was like your off season. You know, that's why I have a lot of respect for guys that play in the Olympics and play, you know, they can play. Uh, right after the season, because it was after our college season, we went to the to the Olympic trials, and then you know it was just like no break, you know, and and I just felt like I I wanted a break and just to you know just to relax and you know just chill with my family and friends and you know just relax, and I didn't have that, you know, after the season you went right to the Olympic trials and then you you playing there and you you know it's grueling, uh, you know it was tough. But it wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a thing of, you know, competition wise, it wasn't a problem because I, you know, I, I, I've always been a competitor. Um, but it was just a, you know, it was, it's just mental, mentally draining, you know, and physically draining because you're going against the best of the best and it's constant. And, you know, it's just like, you know what, man, look, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tired. I'm mentally drained. I'm mentally drained and I need to, I need to refresh myself. So, I mean, it was, it was just, it, that, that was it. It was, you know, I, I was just mentally drained. And physically drained, just needed a break. Well, you're about to have a full career of playing against the best of the best. And right. uh, you're drafted by the Cavaliers. What were your initial thoughts of Cleveland, both the team and the, the town? You know, I had never been to Cleveland before. When I got drafted there, I'd never been there. You know, I, I had heard things about Cleveland, you know, about how cold it was and how it snowed all the time. And the, the nickname was the mistake by the lake and all this stuff. <laughs> but that didn't bother me. I, you know, cold weather didn't bother me or nothing like that. As far as the team goes, you know, they had, you know, this was back when, you know, the ACC was putting out a lot of good players. And, you know, they had, I had played against Brad Doherty. He was a senior when I was a freshman. He was there. Mark Price was there. Um, I remember Tree Rollins from being at Clemson. I remember him. You know, Larry Nance was there. He was also from Clemson. Um, so, you know, you had a little, like, when I got there, I kind of gravitated to the ACC guys. You know, Larry Nance was my guy when I got there. You know what I mean? You know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I knew they were a good team. They had just lost to the Bulls in the first round on that last second Michael Jordan shot. Yeah. And I, you know, I had watched that game. So, you know, I knew it was a good team. So I knew, you know, going there, I would have to go. And if I wanted to play, I had to compete for time. You know, that didn't bother me at all. So I heard things about Lenny Wilkins, how great of a coach he was, you know. So, you know, I knew I just had to be, I just had to be ready to play. And there was no time for a whole lot of mistakes. And I wasn't really a guy that, that gambled a lot, made a lot of mistakes. I was always, you know, solid, uh, a pretty conservative play. I didn't gamble a lot, but when I did gamble, I was successful. You mentioned Lenny Wilkins. What were your impressions of him as a coach? Oh, Lenny, Lenny was a great coach. You know, Lenny, Lenny was very, you know, it, it, it helps when your leader is calm. And Lenny was always very, he, he was always calm no matter what. It could be, you know, point three on the clock, call a timeout, and you get to the huddle, and Lenny was calm. You know, he's like, yo, this is what we're going to do. You know what I'm saying? And he would draw something up. And Lenny was a, 
a master of drawing up plays. Like every game, like the first play we ran was called five up. <laughs> I still remember this. It was five up and every game, no matter what, I came off that plate and I had a layup every game. So Lenny was a master at drawing up plays and I use the five up play now as I coach in high school. I use that play now. <laughs> the Wilkins special. The Wilkins special. And that's what I should call it. But yeah, Lenny, <laughs> Lenny, <laughs> Lenny was, I thought Lenny was a great X and O coach. Probably the only thing like Lenny didn't like when, you know, if we got into practice and we got competitive and we, you know, we get to talking trash to each other, it was, you know, it wasn't no big deal, but Lenny wanted us to save it for the game. He's like, all right, he, he would call practice so you would have that same energy waiting for the next game. You know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, Lenny, I thought Lenny was a great coach. I, I loved playing for him. You mentioned his calmness. Um, yeah. Does that work better for you as a player to know that the coach is calm or would you rather come to the sideline and have somebody that's eccentric and just kind of like, we got to do this and this and this? You know, as a, as a as a player, I think that that worked that worked for me. Him being calm, um, you know, I think V was a totally different coach as far as like when you're playing, he was real energetic on the sideline, jumping up and down. But then in the huddles, V was calm though. So I think it helps when your leader is calm. Um, I think it helps you it helps you uh, stress out less, even though it shouldn't be any stress, you know. But you're you're like, you, you, you become calm when your leaders calm. Absolutely. So your first NBA game was against Larry Bird, Robert Parrish, and the Boston yep. Celtics. And you've kind of stated in the past that you were in complete awe of, of just being in the garden and yep. playing against legends of the game. Uh, at what point do your nerves settle and, and everything kind of sets in and you just play your game? I think, you know, when you, when you get the first, uh, if you get the first foul or you get your first basket, I think that's when things, you know, they settle down then, you know what I'm saying? Because these are guys, you know, I grew up watching Larry Bird at Indiana State playing in Michigan State. I remember pulling against him, pulling for Magic and Greg Kelsa to be on the floor with him. And then you Robert Parrish and, you know, Kevin McHale and Dennis Johnson, you know, so being on the floor with them was just like, holy, you know, holy crap. You know what I'm saying? I'm out here. I'm here now. You know what I'm saying? So. Um, I think the first time you get that first hit, you come off the screen and or the first time Bird says something to you, talking trash to you. I think that's when you realize, you know what? I, I belong here. Let, let's go ahead and get this. Let's, let's go ahead and get this popping. Let's do it. You spend a few years in the NBA and then you go to uh, an Italian league, correct? Yeah, I went to the yep, to the Italian league. Yep. And, and what was kind of your thought process behind making that switch and transitioning from the NBA to a, a Italian league? What happened was I, my, you know, whatever happened with my agent, you know, I didn't get signed. You know, well, I wasn't willing to wait to the last minute. So I, I got a good deal to go over to Italy to play. And, uh, I took the deal, you know what I'm saying? Not knowing, um, anything about the landscape, but, you know, just trusting that, you know, my agent at the time, uh, had everything checked out. Um, I trusted that and, you know, was like, I right, bet I'll go over there and play. You know, I want to see the world and what better way to see the world than on somebody else's dime. Was it a little deflating to kind of, as you said, your agent kind of, you felt might have let you down a little bit and, and to kind of head over there? No, nah, it wasn't deflating at all. You know, it was a job. So, you know, I was having an opportunity to, to, to play pretty much a kid's game when, um, you know, a lot of people wish for that. So it wasn't deflating at all. I wasn't deflated. I wasn't mad about nothing. I was just happy to be playing and just, you know, you know, I was by myself, so I'm, you know, happy to be able to make some money and, 
you know, be able to send some money home to my, my mom and dad, you know what I'm saying? So I was cool. Then you spend some time in the uh, Continental Basketball Association, which is kind of that version, that day's version of the uh, the G League now. Right, right. How much does that motivate you between playing in Italy and playing in that version of the G League to get back to the NBA? Like, does that make you more hungry as a player? I mean, yeah, that motivated me even more because, well, well, for, at first I was upset. Now, that was deflating to go to play in the CBA at first, initially. That was deflating because I knew that I was capable of playing against these other guys. So yeah, that was deflating. That was, that was deflating. Not going overseas. Coming back to the CBA was, a, was deflating for me. But then, you know, I quickly changed that mindset because, you know, as I got to playing in the CBA and then dudes like, these were dudes I hadn't played against. Some of them I had never heard of. You know, they started, you know, trying to go at me. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I was always known as a defender. So I kind of had to prove myself over again. And, once I changed my thinking of, you know, my first, my initial thought of when I went to the CBA was like, damn, you know, why am I here? You know what I'm saying? I, I'm better than this. Why, why am I here? And I was not playing up to my ability. So once I changed my thought process, my, and my thought process changed and, and I said to myself, you know what? I'm here. I'm going to show people why I don't belong here. And once I did that, Oh, that's when I started just destroying people then. So, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was just a change of the thought process. So once I, once I decided to show people that I do not belong in this league and this is why, you know what I'm saying? I, I had, I, and it, nothing, you know, thrilled me more than to have coaches from the other team come up to me after the games and be like, man, you should not be here. <laughs> so then I knew I was doing my job and I had plenty of coaches come up like after every game and be like, yo, you shouldn't be here. And, you know, I felt good about it and I was, I was happy and I didn't mind playing in, in the CBA then when I was hearing that because I, I knew that I was doing my part. So and all I wanted to do was do my part. Well, there was a silver lining to it. I mean, you won a, a CBA championship with yep. the Yakima Sun Kings. Yep. So you're, you and Tony Campbell actually are the only ones to have won a CBA and an NBA title in the same season, correct? Yep, that's correct. And how did that feel to kind of get a small taste of victory? It might have been at a, at a slightly lower level, but what, what was that like? Oh, it was it was great, but the thing that was was greater was that I got the CBA championship and the NBA championship in the same year. So I think you know Tony Campbell and I were the same, only ones to do that. So I mean, it was you know it was it was great. You know, it was you know it was fulfilling, and you know it, it just it just made you feel good, and all the hard work, you know, you see you see it was paying off. Well, it definitely paid off because you signed a 10-day contract at about the midway point of the season with Houston. Yep. And uh, you kind of, you re-up two more times if my my uh, information's correct here. And what was the mindset uh, when it comes to a 10-day contract? Is it is it just like, I'm here, I'm auditioning, and I hope I get the part? My first 10-day, when I signed the first 10-day, I got in and I remember Rudy T, he called me in the office and he said, well, look, you're not going to play much on this first 10-day. And I was like, all right, cool. And uh, he said, but the second 10 day, we're going to see what you got. So, you know, I had been in the league before. So, you know, I was, hey, I was ready. You know, it just so happened like the first the first night uh, on my first 10 day, we play Utah and we blow them out and I get in. So I get acclimated to the offense, the calls and what they're doing. You know, pretty much everybody in the NBA was running the same thing. It's just the calls are different. So I got used to the calls. And then the second night we go to Phoenix. It's another blowout. I get in again. You know, the third night, we get another blowout. Portland blows us out. So I get in again. So that the stars first, are just kind of aligning. Yeah. So the, the, I wasn't supposed to be playing, but then I'm playing. 
You know what I'm saying? So I get a little a level of comfort. Then we get on the next 10 day and we play, I think it was uh, San Antonio and they start me. So, but I'm acclimated and I'm cool. So, you know, everything, you know, it, everything like just, it just lined up, you know, just right. And, you know, I get in and I think Carl Herrera had gotten hurt and uh, we went to New York and played. And of course I loved playing in the garden. We played, we came to Charlotte and played. And I, you know, I just was playing well, but I was very comfortable and it helped that, you know, Kenny Smith was a good friend and, uh, cause I, you know, played against Kenny in college. So, and I knew Kenny, Kenny from Queens too. So, you know, as we playing, you know, Kenny, Kenny also made me feel very comfortable, you know, playing. Well, Kenny's actually quoted as saying, Chucky Brown was my favorite player of all time. He said that on Inside the NBA. <laughs> and, uh, that's gotta be kind of a high honor. Yeah. I, I know they also, they also played a game with, with, of Chucky Brown of guess what team he wasn't on. Right. And they had to go through and cycle and pick, find out which teams you weren't on. So it seems like you guys have had somewhat of a good relationship and he really appreciated you as a teammate yeah 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 kenny was always a good teammate you know i just spoke to him uh was it last week senior day at uh north carolina his son is there so uh he had came into town one day to have dinner with his son and then he went on to uh atlanta for all-star weekend but yeah yeah yeah. kenny and i had you know have had a great relationship you know we still talk um you know my other teammate i talked to is sam cassell so i just talked to sam cassell today so <laughs> so so yeah so you know it's, it's good i talked to clyde you know, i gotta i gotta actually i haven't talked to clyde in a while but um but yeah anytime i call clyde he calls me back so you know that that feels good to you know have that um you know that bond with guys and like i remember you know clyde works with the big three and you know i went up to the big three when they came to charlotte and we had a play in houston called step up so when I when I see Clyde, we we so first thing we say is step up because <laughs> because that was our play. So uh, so yeah, man, it's it's just great having the bond with those guys, and you know when you see those guys, it's it's all love. The only guy that I have not seen that I want to see is Dream. I would love to run into Dream because we had a lot of fun together. Well, I'm going to get to Dream in a little bit, but I'm going to jump back to Kenny Smith for a second. Okay. Because uh, you guys were rivals in college because yep. he played for North Carolina and you played for NC State. Yep. The first time you meet him when you when you come to Houston, does that creep into your mind a little bit? Or is that something where it's just like, it's in the past, we're done, and we're teammates now, so I can't even think about it? No, nah, I mean, you know, what people don't know is like when we were in college— like, I would go over to Carolina and play in the summertime with those guys. They had, you know, Dudley Bradley would come back, Worthy, Jordan, Perkins, Doherty, all them guys would come back. So I would go down there and Kenny was there then. You know, Kenny would be like, yo, you want to run? You can run with us. So I would run with them in the summer. So I knew Kenny before Houston. I knew him before Houston. So you know, it was just great coming in and, you know, him being there to, to help make the, the, the transition real smooth. You mentioned Jordan. Is he as competitive as everything makes him appear to be? Yeah, he's very competitive. You know what I'm saying? I think I think everybody's competitive, but I just think that, you know, he probably, uh, you know, may have just done, you know, done a little more work than others. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, but yeah, he's very competitive. You know what I'm saying? He wants to win, you know, and, and it's not like nobody else doesn't want to win. It's just that, yeah, he, he just was a little better at it. <laughs> Well, you came to a winner. What's it like to uh, to join a reigning champion team? I mean, does that just fuel the fire? Yeah, I mean, you see how things are done. And, you know, it always helps when your leader is the guy that sets the tone. And, you know, Dream set the tone. So, you know, it always helps when, you know, the coach is able to get on that that best player. You know what I'm saying? 
and, you know, Rudy was able to get on Dream. And, you know, if Rudy can get on Dream, he can get on you. You know what I'm saying? So that always helps when, you know, your best player, your, your leader is your best player. And, you know, Dream was our leader and our best player. Well, those Houston Rockets, as you mentioned prior, picked up a pretty big player uh, about the halfway point of the season in Clyde Drexler. Right. That was a monster trade, and you hadn't been there very long. Right. How much energy, energy and confidence did that inject into you and into the team? Well, you know, I had played against Clyde, had never played with him, and I knew, you know, Clyde was a monster. You know what I'm saying? That, you know, as a shooting guard, big as he was, um, there was a lot of guys that couldn't handle him. I think it was a big boost because, you know, Clyde being from Houston— coming back home to play and then he's playing with his college teammate you know I think that was a boost for everybody I remember the night that they got announced with Clyde and Tracy Murray was traded for Otis Thorpe and I remember when Clyde walked in and the the standing ovation that he got and um you know once we started to play with him and I remember one play one play in particular we had first ran our first pick and roll together and Clyde would dribble kind of with his head down which they always tell you to keep your head up and Clyde always had his head down, but he saw everything. Like, he didn't look like it, but he did. So he came off a of pick and roll. So he had his head down, so I just kind of stopped rolling. He came off the pick and roll, and he had to throw it somewhere else. So as we're running back down court, he was like, hey, keep going. I see you. And I was like, oh, okay. So and that was like the start of our, our thing. And, you know, if you can go back and look at any, like, Houston Rockets pick and roll plays, it was, you know, Clyde come off the pick and roll. It was either... They double him and let me roll. They don't say somebody else has to come to me. And they always went after Clyde because he was the better player. So and he would always find me, man, for easy layup dunks. And, you know, I remember my second year in Houston in 96, leading the league in field goal percentage, shot like 60, about like 65, 64, something like that. I can't remember. This. It was in the 60s, though. But I just didn't have enough attempts to qualify for the, um, for the league lead. Your team, it kind of had a bumpy kind of, the season was a roller coaster a little bit. Right. Uh, you started this, the, the playoffs as the sixth seed and the underdogs, and no sixth seed had actually ever won a title up to that point. Right. And and there's no home court advantage. What's what's the mood in the locker room? Because the team expected to be there after being there the year before. Is it a little bit of, a little deflated just kind of with what's going on and kind of how the, the roller coaster of the season went? Nah, I mean, you know, I remember... Well, our first series against Utah, and uh, we were down 2-1. We were down 2-1 coming back. to That was when it was the best out of five then. So we 2-1 coming back to the house, and we won that game. And then, you know, we went up to um, – we went back to Utah for game five. So, you know, we packed to go to Phoenix. <laughs> so, you know, so I was like, all right, so I'm rolling with them. So – and then we end up winning game five. We go to Phoenix. We get blown out of the first two games. Think we Hold might. on, I want to stop you there, though, because in the, in the waning minutes of game five against the Utah Jazz, you right. guys were trailing by, by several points. And, and this, it looked like the season might definitely be right. over. But Rudy Tomjanovich kind of rallied the troops through a couple of late timeouts. Right. Can you talk a little bit, bit about his timeouts there and kind of his Hall of Fame style? Well, yeah, he called the timeouts. And he's like, yo, guys, he just called, he just say, guys, guys, stick with it. We're all right. We, yo, we just got to get a couple stops. He told us just to keep playing hard. We're all right. We're all right. And then, you know, Dream, Dream was echoing that. I think Rudy, like I said, another calm leader, you know, so he was calm doing the whole thing. So it was, you know, we didn't worry about anything. We, like he said, we need to get some stops. We got those stops, you know what I'm saying? And we had guys like myself, Charles Jones out there playing and, uh, you know, Robert Ory. You know, Mario, 
And, you know, we had, you know, tough guys out there and, and we got those stops, you know, Pete Chilcutt. You know, we had a lot of role players and we knew we knew where our bread was buttered and everybody knew their role. I think that was a big thing for us. Everybody knew their role. And um, that's why that's why we were able to come back and, and pull that off. When you guys are down three to one to the Phoenix Suns, I mean, that's something that that only been done, I don't know, like three or four times in up to that point. Right. Is that just they're just completely do you guys kind of roll over or what's the mindset of a team at that point? I remember we were down three one. Right. Game five. We going back to Phoenix and Clyde was sick. <laughs> so it was exactly looking good. what you don't want. Exactly what you don't want. So Clyde is sick. You talk 20 some odd points. He's sick. So I remember, um, you know, Clyde, Clyde being sick and he had to get the IV and all that type stuff. So and I just remember thinking, you know, you know, somebody got to step up, you know what I'm saying? And I just remember saying to myself, why not me? I just said, why not me? And that was one of my best playoff games that I had was that night. And we ended up winning that game. I believe we won in overtime. I think we won in overtime. And then once we won that game, and I remember Kenny saying in the locker room, yo, if we get this game, they got to come back to Houston. They don't want to come back to Houston. That was the big thing. Barkley was kind of quoted as saying, we we can't bring them back. We can't go back to Houston or we might be in trouble. Yep, yep. And uh, I remember they showed us on the video where A.C. Green had wrote on the chalkboard after they, I think they beat us in game four and... He wrote on the chalkboard, we're not coming back. So once we got that game five win, we knew we had a chance to win the series because they did not want to go back to Houston. And when they that game six, when they went back to Houston, we blew them out. And that's when the table started really turning. That's when the table started turning. But when we came to Phoenix in game seven at the half, I remember being down 10. And I remember when we got in the locker room and Dream was like, hey, we got them right where we want them. <laughs> so I was like, all right, you know, we down 10. If that's where we, you know, that's where we want to be. All right, cool. So, you know, but, you know, Dream saying that, I think that uh, put a lot of confidence in everybody else. And, you know, we had guys like Mario, who was a tough competitor, um, you know, Sam. You know, we just had a lot of gritty guys. We had a lot of grit. And that was why we won that series. I think we just had more grit than them. Well, you mentioned Hakeem, so let's let's do the uh, let's do the Hakeem Olajuwon talk here. Okay, going to San Antonio. Yeah, he kind of put David Robinson in his place, who was the regular season MVP. Right, and uh, he got that award, that MVP award, before Game One. And how much did that motivate not just Olajuwon but the team to kind of? I mean that that kind of rubbing some salt on the wounds like hey we're gonna we're gonna tout this guy's the best and we we haven't even played a game in this series yet yeah that that particular when they had when they gave david robson that mvp trophy right in front of dream you know we all of us immediately looked at dream you know to see the look on his face so you know dream you know he was he was always focused anyway and that was a big battle for him um but it was funny because what, what look was that like though what was i mean it what, was what kind of sense did you get it was a look of all right we, I'm, I'm going. I'm about to show you who's the better player, who's the real MVP. You know what I'm saying? Because he had just come off the MVP. Uh, Dream had uh, leaned over to Clyde and said, "You know, hey," he said, "Drex, that's okay. He got the little trophy. We're going to get the big trophy." You know what I'm saying? So, so you know, uh, you know, like I said, we watched Dream and his reaction, and a lot of people don't know that actually Dream and David Robinson were pretty good friends. Hmm. You know, they did a lot of religion talk because Dream, being a Muslim. 
and Dave being a Christian, they did a lot of talking, you know, about the, the religions. Um, a lot of people don't know that. But, you know, we, you know, just seeing his face, we knew, all right, well, it's on now. You know, that's the saying that we had, you know, it's on, it's on now. You know, let's, let's get it popping. Let's go. <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes being friends though can elevate the game even more. I mean, it's almost like, it's almost like your, your little brother, your big brother. You right. know, you, you want to beat them even more. Right. So that you can rub it in their face later on, but, you, and then go out for a beer or a burger, you know? Right. Yeah. When, you know, when you play against your friends, you know, that's when you usually compete the hardest. You know what I'm saying? Not that you don't compete hard against someone who's not your friend. You know, you probably just, you know, you won't, you won't hurt your friend. You'd be more willing to hurt a guy that you don't care nothing about. You know what I'm saying? So he might get an elbow, but your friend won't get that elbow. But this dude might get an elbow. So, you know, so yeah, you do elevate your game a little bit more when you do play against your friend. Elijah Wan played unbelievable, unbelievably in that series right. against Robinson and the Spurs. How intense was he in, in winning another title? I mean, was that... Fourth and four, uh, like right at the top of his mind. Of you see Jordan winning a few, right. and we want to be the next dynasty. Is that something that's that's at the forefront of his mind? I think it was. I think it was for Dream. I think he wanted to be one of considered one of the all time great centers. I think that you know he had he had the period in Houston where he had to grow, and he had to you know like they talked about how you know Jordan had to grow and trust his teammates. Dream went through that same thing. You know, he had to grow and he had to trust his teammates. It was times where, you know, he might shoot the ball with three people on him. But he grew out of that and learned to trust his teammates. And that's when he won his titles. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I think Dream is definitely in my mind top two center. You know, him and Kareem are the top two centers ever to play the game in my mind. Then you guys move on to the finals. I watched some highlights of the finals the other day, and I can see you a lot in the background on the bench, uh, jumping up, cheering, clapping every time there's there's a big play. Right. How important was it for you to support your team from the bench and on the court? Well, it was very important for me to support my team from the bench. I mean, that was no time, not that there's a, a, a right time, any time to pout about minutes, but that definitely was not the right time to be upset about any minutes, so... Any minutes that I got, I made the most of my minutes and just tried to do something positive out there. And any minute, any time that I was on the bench, I was going to cheer for my teammates and try to elevate, you know, their play. And, you know, it was just a time of, you know, together, it, you know, just being together. We, we going to do the only way to do this thing is together. And we couldn't have, you know, one guy being mad about some minutes or anything that like. we couldn't. Have, and we did not have one guy. That was upset about it. Everybody knew, like, all right, we get our opportunity. We need to take advantage of our opportunity and then, you know, let the next guy go on, next, next man up. So, I mean, it was very important for me to, to not only be positive towards my teammates on the bench, but, you know, when I got out there, make sure that I got out there and did something positive. And, you know, I'm out there and I knew, you know, I knew I was going to get about 15 minutes. Hey, I'm going to make the most of these 15 minutes. Some of those 15 minutes were against Shaquille O'Neal. Yep. And at that point, uh, a, a guy like that really hadn't been seen in the NBA too much. I mean, he was just a different breed. Right. What was it like for you going up against him when he's at the point where he's really starting to rise to, to, to stardom and starting to really put up some numbers? Yeah, it was, you know, of course, you know Shaq was a great center. You know, Shaq, um, he, he ran the floor. He was a guy that you hadn't seen, you know, in our time. You know, big, 7'1", 300 pounds, could run. You know, had a nice soft touch around the basket, you know, but he was just young and he was still learning the game. And I think that that's what 
you know, Dream had over him was that Dream was more seasoned. And that's why, you know, we were able to come out on top of that. Dream was just more seasoned. So Dream knew that Shaq was bigger, stronger. But, you know, Dream, he knew to finesse him and, and he knew not to waste his strength trying to, you know, outpower Shaq, outmuscle Shaq. Because that wasn't gonna, <laughs> that wasn't gonna happen. Uh, but it was, you know, it was just great to be out there with him. If you're talking about Shaq from like five years later, six years later, do you think it might have been a slightly different series? Yeah, it could have been. It could have been because, you know, like I said, Shaq just wasn't seasoned. He wasn't seasoned. It could have been a very different series. You know, Shaq was what three or four years in the league, maybe. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So you talk about Shaq at at you know seven years in the league, it was a totally different Shaq. You know, I think that was the first time he had been to the finals. And, you know, he didn't, he, you know, he didn't know, you know, and, and, and there is a different feel when you get to the finals. You know what I'm saying? There is a different feel. So, you know, like I said, he was just, he wasn't as seasoned as Dream. And Dream was just a little more seasoned than him. What brings on that feel? What is it that the national spotlight, that the chance for, for NBA immortality, what brings about the next level of feeling? I think that it's just the fact that, you know, you're the only two teams playing. If somebody want to watch basketball, that's who, that's who they watch it. You know, I think that just knowing that the world is watching, you know, means a lot. And, you know, you're on, you're on the big stage, you know, and not everybody is built for it. You know what I'm saying? Not everybody is built for it. So I think just knowing that you're the only two teams playing and that everybody, if they want to watch basketball, that they got to watch you. I think just knowing that, you know, was, is a big thing. Well, one guy that was definitely built for it was uh, Robert Ory. Right. I mean... In Game 3, you witnessed firsthand one of Big Shot Bob's uh, legendary three-pointers. Could you see then that he would go on to be arguably the most clutch shooter of all time? I don't think you saw it then, but you knew you know, Robert was a good player. But I don't think you saw it then. You, you didn't see that yet. You know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't see that. I saw him being as a great player or going to be a great, great player because Robert was young too. You know, I think Robert might have been in his second or third year. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't that... And I don't think he was in the league that long. Might have been three, maybe three or four years maybe in. But you could see that he was going to be a great player. But I didn't see him as being one of the most, or being, you know, considered one of the most clutch shooters in the league. I didn't see that coming. Give us your best memory that we haven't discussed from each of the playoff series. And we're going to start with the first round versus Utah. Okay, my first, my best memory. Okay, a funny story. So I'm going to the free throw line. Um... <laughs> And we're down, we're down one. We're down one, and I'm going to the free throw line. And as I'm going to the free throw line, I get fouled, I'm going to the line. And so Clyde says to me, he says, all right, man, look, you know, if you, if you, if you make these free throws, we win the game. If you miss, we lose. And I was like, damn. No pressure at yeah. all. <laughs> so, so Clyde just put humongous pressure on me just now. So I was like, and I kind of looked at him like, damn. And Kenny, Kenny saw the look. So then Kenny came up right after that and said, yo, man, you got these. Go ahead and knock them down. So that kind of relaxed me. So that's my biggest memory from, uh, from that first series. What about the semifinals versus Phoenix? Semifinals versus Phoenix? Oh, it's definitely uh, Mario giving uh, Joe Klein and the Phoenix Suns the kiss of death because during the game, what people don't know during the game, when Phoenix was up, Joe Klein, every chance he got, it was a free throw or something like that, he would turn around and kiss you know, give us the kiss of death. That's why when Mario hit the shot, he did that to them. You know what I'm saying? So that's definitely my biggest memory there. The Western Conference Finals versus San Antonio. Uh, the Western Conference Finals versus, oh, definitely, um, you know, the show that Dream put on. 
And I remember Kareem Abdul-Jabbar sitting on the baseline by our bench. And like Dream was doing moves and Kareem was like, like, do, like covering his mouth, like, oh my goodness. Like he was like, oh my goodness. You know, like he did that, like, oh my goodness. So I think, you know, watching Kareem's reactions to what Dream was doing out there to David Robinson is a big memory for me there. Does it make you a little nervous when a player like that, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, sitting on the sideline, like first row watching you, a guy you probably grew up and idolized with a similar sort of game? Nah, it didn't make me nervous. You no, know, it was kind of it was kind of cool to see Kareem. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it was kind of cool to see him. You know, you like I like I used to like seeing the old timers. You know, Clyde Frazier, uh, Earl Monroe. You know, uh, you know Kareem. You know any of those old timers. You know Bobby Dandridge. Any of those old timers. I used to love to see them. Just to see them. Marcus Johnson. I used to love just seeing them. Let's jump to the finals versus Orlando. Uh, best memory. Uh, my best memory of the finals would have to be probably that game one, that comeback. Uh, you know, we were down because they, them young boys, they jumped on us. And for us to have that comeback and come back and win, I think that, you know, Kenny hit like seven threes, I think, uh, in that game. So I think that that's my biggest memory, the comeback against Orlando in game one. Well, jumping to game four of that series, um, you're watching the final seconds tick off the clock. Right. What's going through your mind as you realize after all your hard work that you're finally going to become an NBA champion? I think just, you know, all of the hard work, I think all of the, you know, I was there for half the year, but I still saw some of the behind the scenes issues that was going on with the team. I think all the, you know, the injuries that we had and, um, you know, just all the little things that we had to deal with that year. Oh, you know, I would only dealt with it half the year, but just all those little things, you know, all those, all those have, you know, led to this point where, you know, we stuck together, we stuck it out, and now we're here about to win a championship. Did you get to celebrate that with your family? Did you have any family in the stands? I did. I think my mom was there. And um, yeah, so I got to celebrate with my mom. Was that a pretty special moment? Yeah, it was special. Yeah, it was special. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't have kids or I wasn't married yet. Um, that would have been nice to have, you know, a wife and kids there. That would have been great to celebrate that. But, you know, it's my mom and I think a friend of mine, Darren, was there. A friend of mine was there too, Darren Carter. He was there with me. What was it like in the locker room afterwards? Um, do you have any memories that stand out of that celebration? I mean, it was just, you know, popping champagne and pouring it all over each other. Your eyes burning if you didn't have the goggles on. And, you know, dudes were just, you know, just having a great time. And like I said, it just felt like, it just felt, you know, it felt a relief, you know, it felt, it felt, it felt a relief to, to win it. But yeah, it was just, you know, a lot of, a lot of champagne getting poured out. <laughs> Who did you gravitate towards during the celebrating? Who did you kind of hang out with? Kenny, Kenny, it was Kenny. It was Kenny and Kenny and Mario. Those are the two um, that I gravitated to. And Mario is another dude from New York too. It's funny how it's almost like a little New York click. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. What's it like when the champagne's gone and everybody's kind of packing up? Do you do you look for another spot to hang out and keep it going, or is it all like, all right, let's go home and we know that the parade's right around the corner? Yeah, I think it was a thing where I, I remember, like, you know, I had, you know, like I said, I was I was by myself, so I remember at the end after all the champagne had been poured out and you know everybody showering, and I was one of the last ones to get in the shower, and uh, I remember being in the shower. You know, Rudy T hey, was walking through to the uh, the film room. Was like you had to walk through, like, and you had to walk past the shower to go to the film room. So Rudy 
was walking back there and he saw me in the shower. So he, he stuck his head in there and was like, hey, look, you know, you did a great job this year. Don't worry about your contract. We're going to get that done. So, um, you know, it, it was just, you know, it was a feeling of relief. You know, when I heard that, it was a feeling of relief. It was the city of Houston's, it was their, their second championship. The Oilers had won in the AFL in the, in the 60s, I think twice. But, but this was kind of a different animal. This was the, the, the main sport, the main, the main, the big thing. And right. uh, how electric was that city to add a second championship back to back? Oh, I think it, it was it was very electric. I mean, one of the the great things about the city of Houston, man, is you know they really appreciate their professional athletes. Um, at least they did back then. You know, you could you know I, I can't remember like you know a whole lot of having to even pay for a meal if you know you walk into a spot and they knew who you were. Oh, that meal was on the house, man. <laughs> so you know, and, it, it, and I can remember like you know even like you know going to the mall and like people like running through the mall to just to come get a look at you. You know, it was just, and, it, and I wasn't used to that. You know, I, you know, reserved those uh, feelings for guys like Dream and Clyde, you know, who were superstars. You know, I was just a role player. And, you know, you go to the mall and people running, you hear people screaming and you, you run out the door like, okay, who here? You know what I'm saying? And it's, you know, they coming to see you. Like a celebrity. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> you know, I think that, um, you know, the city of Houston, they really appreciated. You know, all of the athletes, you know, no matter who you were, you appreciated, you know, especially if you worked hard. And, you know, I developed a friendship uh, with Gerard uh, Shokroon. I think that's how you say his last name. And he started the Chucky Brown fan club. And, you know, it, it was just, yeah. So I had no, I was humbled by having a fan club. You know what I mean? So <laughs> all of that was wild to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> what kind of response do you get when you go back now? I mean, you only play there for for a year, but is is the love still there between you and the city? Yeah, I played there. I actually started the next year. I started the entire year. I was the only guy to play the full season. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, going to the airport, going through the airport, um, you know, people recognize you and say, hey, you know, you're Chucky Brown. Like, yeah, man, you know, and you know, can I take a picture with you? So it's you still get love there. And that, that was back in 95, over 20, 20 some odd years ago. You know what I'm saying? And people still, you know, appreciate it. It makes you feel good when you're appreciated. Jump into the parade. Did you experience that with Kenny and Mario, just like the uh, the locker room celebration, or how did how did that kind of go? I mean, I I don't remember who I was on the truck with. I think I think we was on the same. I think we might have been on the same truck. It might have been a couple of trucks. I'm not sure. They were fire trucks. Yeah, right? yeah, a couple of fire trucks. Yep. So y'all don't remember exactly who was on the fire truck. I just you know it was just great to drive down there. Like they had the path already set, and just all the confetti flying everywhere, and just how happy the people were, and you know just all of the you know, appearances, people wanted you to come and, you know, speak to their businesses and stuff like that. It was just, you know, you had, you know, a bunch of autograph signings and, you know, stuff like that. People just wanted to see you, man. So, you know, it was just, it was just great. Do you have any specific memories that stand out? Because, I mean, during that day, you guys are pretty much kings of the city. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think. Anything stood out? I mean, not just being on that fire truck, you know, just never, you know, you see the, you watch the Macy's parade and, you know, the Thanksgiving and Christmas Day parade, you watch that. I went to it as a kid, and just to be a part of a parade, I think, was a big deal. You know what I'm saying? It was just a fun thing. What's life been like for you after the NBA and after your championship? What kind of occupies your time nowadays? I know you said you uh, you do some coaching. Uh, right now, my time is occupied, you know, coaching. I do radio for some college games, work for Compass Media, and, you know, just basically with my family, my wife and kids now. So, you know, you got to just... Uh, you know, you just do things with your family now, you know. 
So let me think. Life has slowed down a lot. You still work out and try to stay in some type of shape. You're not you're not in the shape that you used to be in, but you know you're maintaining what you can. But yeah, that's that's about all that occupies my time is just like my family and you know still do basketball. My youngest daughter plays basketball. My older two play soccer. Um, so yeah, they they occupy your time. Yeah, you said life slows down, but it sounds like basketball is still just as much a part of your life now as it was 25 years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Basketball is always going to be a part of your life, you know, because you did it for so long. You know, it's hard to just, you know, not be a part of it, you know, especially, you know, when you love being, you know, you love basketball. So, you know, it's, it's hard not to be a part of it. We always end it by asking one final question, and it's where do you currently keep your championship ring? I kept my, my mother keeps it at her house. So, you know, I let her have it. I'm not really a big jewelry guy. So I let my mom have it. Is it on display or is it just kind of tucked away in a box somewhere safe? I believe it's tucked away. I never see it when I go home. So <laughs> it's tucked away. It's funny because I've talked to several athletes and at this point now, I'd say easily 80% of them have said they're not, they're either not sure where it is or they think it's tucked away and haven't seen it in years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I I haven't seen it in years, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Chucky, I want to thank you for taking a few minutes to speak with us today. Yeah, and, no problem. Uh, just kind of relive the past of the uh, the championship. Yeah, man. Well, well, thank you for having me, man. It's always you know fun to talk about those days, you know, and you know, because a lot of people they want to know, you know, what happened behind the scenes, man. So you know, it's always a pleasure to talk about it. Thanks for listening to I One Two. This podcast is produced by Ed Miller and me, Max Morgan of Malix Media. I One Two is available wherever podcasts are found. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on Instagram at I One Two Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>